wherever you go, however you go. For energy on the go, it's got to be 5-Hour Energy. It works fast, it works long, it tastes good, and with zero sugar and four calories, there's nothing holding you back. Fits your pocket, fits your backpack, fits your on-the-go life, whether you're going to work, going on vacation, or just going out with friends. 5-Hour Energy. Energy on the go. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Kiki Von Glinow, the founder and CEO of Toast Media Group, on how underserved audiences, Gen Z, and influencer marketing are related. Let's begin. Hi, Kiki. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. How's everything in New York, the industry and the scene, publishing scene there at the moment? It's very, it's an interesting time right now. I think for a lot of digital publishers, Facebook is kind of rocking their world in big ways. But I think, you know, over the past few years, those shakeups from platforms have always led to innovation from a lot of different publishers. So I think it's an exciting time for sure. A lot of people are now trying to take a platformless approach and I spoke with someone from India who's doing the same thing. And when I approached, when I looked at your, found your website and what you guys are doing, it seems like you're doing something similar, like trying to take a platform approach as well. But I guess for those people who don't know much about you, sorry, just before I say that, everyone, Kiki used to work for Huffington Post for six years and now she started her own company called Toast Media. So, and she's taking another platformless approach as well. So I'll just pass it to you just to give everyone, give you the opportunity to give a background about what Toast Media is about. Sure, yeah. So Toast Media is a contextualized commerce company uh, serving underserved Gen Z audiences. So kind of to put that more simply, we are a network of shopping recommendation apps for niche team communities. And so the one that we're launching with this spring is called Norman, and it serves the gender fluid community. So it's a genderless shopping recommendation app, as well as having some enterprise features and feature writing within it for people who don't believe that gender has a place when it comes to great style. So speaking of that platform approach, Norman is one of many apps that we'll have in the future serving these different audiences. And I think we take a platform first approach without reliance on those platforms, which is, I think, what has gotten a lot of publishers, including my previous place of work at HuffPost in trouble with really fully relying on the platforms for distribution. Instead, we are going to really, we're going to be influencer distribution pretty much only. We're not going to have any Norman branded accounts on any social media channels, but really take a people first approach on these platforms. So I guess one of the reasons why we really went that route is because as I'm sure a lot of you saw, as Instagram became super popular, a lot of publishers who had developed followings on Snapchat were now like, okay, great. Now I have to start all over again on a new platform. Whereas people who were switching from Snapchat to Instagram really just took their following with them. You can, there are a lot of celebrities who went from Snapchat to kind of Instagram as a main distribution platform for themselves as well as influencers. So we really saw audiences following people across platforms and not brands so much. So Toast Media Group, all of our properties will have an influencer first, a people first approach to dis- distribution on these platforms. Yeah. So with this podcast being about Gen Z publishing, is that why you, you've seen those trends? Is that most because of the Gen Z consumer behavior that's going on? Or is that something just generally that's happening? In, um, totally. Yeah. I really like to, I mean, what I kind of live by when it comes to developing these new brands that we're creating within Toast Media is that brands aren't cool, people are cool. So especially when it comes to Gen Z, connecting and having kind of a feeling of personal or intimate connection with a brand. And I'm saying brand, but I really think it's the people behind those brands that are making them successful with Gen Z these days. So I think a lot of actually e-commerce brands have done this really well. And I've taken a lot of cues from those brands to how we'll structure my company as a media company. So for example, 
let's see, Glossier is a beauty company that was launched out of a beauty blog. And there's a woman behind that company. She's the CEO named Emily Weiss. And she very much is the face of Glossier. It very much has her persona in everything she does. She is a very integral part to the interaction with the customer. So I think that's how I kind of have been thinking about structuring our media company so that people are really the touch points with us as a brand and not the brand being kind of that first touch point where then you kind of discover people within it. So coming to that point about your inspiration, is that something that you figured out while you're in Huffington Post? Or like you said, you just stumbled upon a blog and then maybe you came inspiration out of your own time. Where did the inspiration, the branch out? Yes. It really did come from HuffPost. So one of the, I, I was the head of growth and analytics at HuffPost, and that meant kind of overseeing maybe what some companies call audience development. So that was social media, SEO, analytics, email marketing, and as well as a, an experimental labs team. And so it was really cool within that labs team to try really new things and pull in those other teams that were part of our group to experiment with them. And one thing that we did that was super successful and absolutely got me thinking about this kind of way of structuring something was the launch of a bunch of non-HuffPost branded Facebook communities. So they were platform first, for sure. And we really let the audience that we were going after dictate the content we created. So often a lot of digital media companies you'll see will create new verticals or new brands, but really they're just repackaging content they were already creating under a new umbrella. So an example of what we did at HuffPost was we saw that a few articles here and there that the HuffPost lifestyle team was writing about introverts and introvert like lifestyle, little comics, funny things about introverts were doing really, really well. So we kind of dug into that a little bit deeper and said like, who's really serving introverts in an explicit way? And no one really was. So we created a Facebook group called Canceled Plans. Absolutely no like HuffPost branding on it or anything like that. And that Facebook group ended up performing about like 18 times better in terms of engagement, engagement raw numbers than our legacy HuffPost lifestyle Facebook page. So that's when I started really thinking, like, what does it look like to create a people first and audience first brand that is really derived from an audience instead of created for an audience, if that makes sense? That entirely makes sense. I guess the quick thing that came to my mind was if you're making a group that it's not, I think the person, brand employees are running, a, is there a, like a line between, do they know that it's been run by? So, yeah. I, we, and there was in all Facebook pages, there's like a little about section where we 100% disclosed that this was a product of Huffington Post, but we didn't want to kind of beat people over the head with HuffPost. We weren't trying to use HuffPost to get people to follow it as kind of like, oh, this is legitimate. This is HuffPost. We really wanted it to be something that very specific people who were very much a part of that target demo came across and said, oh, wow, this is for me. We shared kind of down the line HuffPost links on it and things like that. So it definitely, I'm sure people kind of understood that it was part of HuffPost at that time, but it really in the beginning was just an engagement place. So we weren't even putting HuffPost links on it. We weren't trying to monetize it in any way. We were just really trying to grow an authentic community. And that's what we did, which is great. I'm really fascinated about communities at the moment as well, because even there's even like a stat that I've seen, like from, for example, from Facebook where when one person shares like facebook for every one person that shares you get another seven people sharing and i can see how much impactful groups are especially the totally. and i think it's going to be one big one this year so if we can go into a bit of detail what's the steps and processes around being able to create these groups and how do you find micro influencers within these groups or how do you find from them yeah. and get them in, on board and an advocate of your group Mm -hmm. In the case of Norman and kind of why we chose that community to go after the gender fluid community or the community that was interested in a gender neutral style was actually just through a lot of Gen Z research. When I was at HuffPost, I was also lucky enough or it really helped this future endeavor that I'm working on now. I was leading our Gen Z acquisition and research team for AOL or which owns HuffPost. So through that, I really got to see like, what are the real trends within Gen Z. And one thing I really started to pick up on was they're incredibly progressive. 
in a lot of things and what they expect from brands and the transparency they expect and the social good that they expect from brands, as well as kind of how they think about themselves. Individuality is something that, well, as a millennial, when you were growing up, you really wanted to fit in. You didn't want to stand out. Gen Z is really excited about standing out and being unique. So I really kind of started diving into that thread a little bit more and saw through different studies. And we were also doing focus groups at and digital surveys, things like that at HuffPost for the Gen Z community and how they started talking about gender and how it doesn't define someone. And that's when I started really just kind of pulling that thread of, okay, how does this young generation think about gender and how does that apply to style? And from there, just like I think what really got me starting to think that this was something that could be an influencer-driven di distribution model was just like going down the rabbit hole of hashtags on Instagram. Mm -hmm. There are so many different hashtags for this community. And that's really how I've actually developed our whole kind of army of influencers who are interested in supporting Norman. It was really just going through hashtags, finding people who were really a target audience for us or someone who had the following of the target audience that we're going after. And then Instagram has that amazing little like down arrow you can click next to someone's profile and it shows you more people like them. So that's really how we cultivated our list of ambassadors, influencers that we'll be working with at launch for us. And just kind of reaching out via Instagram myself, the response rate, I had like close to a hundred percent response rate of people who are interested in working with us on Norman because it is so mission aligned to their values, who they are, their personality. So I think that's absolutely key if you are interested in developing an influencer marketing program is not going after people who are tangentially related to your mission or what you're kind of trying to do, but very spot on associated with it. And we're also, we're not going after influencers with a hundred thousand followers. We're really doing the micro influencer, going the micro influencer route with that. I think it's definitely on point because I've seen it from my end as well. Like people who are, who like we've done interviews on State of Booth Publishing, not to promote State of Booth Publishing, but based on experience, my experience, we've done a lot of interviews on State of Booth Publishing. We've got people who have big followers, but you, you see no reaction or thinking from their communities. But for people who are not, don't have a big following, but have like very close connections in the industry, yeah, who would endorse them, then you see a better reaction from them. So. I definitely agree with you on the long tail and the micro influencer approach on that. So if we can just take a step back, how's your current day to day and your, you know, your structure around Toast Media currently? How is it now? Yeah. So we're a small team. I have a co-founder, we have a tech lead and one developer. So some of those people still have full-time jobs. <laughs> so we're working on this at, you know, at night, every night we have a 10 PM meeting where we kind of go over what we've accomplished that day and set the tone for the next day. And what we're trying to do, we're very much in like beast mode right now, trying to get out the gate for that, for an alpha launch of the end of March. So we'll have that alpha launch just be for influencers and maybe like 2000 target users that we've identified via Instagram to offer them. We are subscription-based, but we'll offer them a free access to Norman to kind of give us feedback before a public launch. But right now it's recruiting freelancers. It's making partnerships with brands that we'll be kind of promoting. It's doing a lot of content calendar creating. I mean, I started as a journalist at HuffPost, but haven't been as close to the content in quite some time. So it's been really exciting for me to get back to that side of things as well. So right now I'm doing a, a bit of everything, trying to make sure we've got launch day and marketing plans in place, as well as kind of a sustained marketing strategy, and also starting to think about what we want to look for in terms of investment from kind of outside sources as well. I'm sure like expressing yourself with me, I know it's a, you said it in your piece, but at the same time, I think it, it might be it's exciting to stretch yourself again, because you, when you're in a role in a previous company, you're only sort of limited to what you can do there. It's a role-based one, but now you're just making this your own. So I'm sure it's very exciting. It's super exciting. Yeah. I think the, the thing that's difficult is I had a great team at HuffPost and I, you know, if you had a big idea, you could pull in a couple different people to help you execute it. Whereas as you heard, it's a team of four of us. So it's definitely, there are not enough hours in the day for sure, but that's why you got the alpha and then the beta and then you keep growing with it. It's a lot of quick iterations, I guess. Yeah. Just to make it go as quick as you can. Otherwise it's just going to be, a lag process, I guess. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. 
And is your co-founder and your team, are they related? Did you meet them within the industry or they somehow have a relationship with you in the past or? They are all people I've met through the industry. Yeah. So no one that I hadn't kind of worked with in some capacity before, which is great to kind of, you know, there's a lot of trust that's needed with an initial team to have a similar vision to you and to trust you and your vision. So it was kind of, I know a lot of people who found new partners who they haven't worked with before and have had great success with that. But I think it was important to me to really kind of know how these people worked and feel comfortable with them and know that they're the people to kind of execute the vision. And they also brought a lot to the vision, which has been awesome. How important is it for you to have those people now, given that you're looking for brand partnerships and and how are you proposing the value proposition? How are people buying into Norman, especially given that it's not live yet? How do you show that potential promise to them? I think it's just by talking about kind of the authenticity we're going for in terms of speaking with other brands, a lot of whom are within the style space. And we probably aren't going to have any of those partnerships live for Alpha by any means. But it's really just brands that are actually explicitly creating textiles, products for this community, they don't have distribution and they also don't have the buy-in from large retailers when it comes to this genderless movement, this movement kind of evolving past gender. So they really look to us as kind of somewhat of a beacon of hope to say, this could be a great distribution platform for us to reach the community that we're trying to reach. And we also think about it like as a two-way street too. There aren't a ton of brands out there creating products explicitly for this community. So we want them to succeed as well because we need to bring those products to our audience. So I think it's definitely a mutually beneficial thing. And that's why we've been able to kind of create those partnerships and get those things to be part of the ethos of Norman that kind of we help, everyone's kind of working toward the same goal, I guess. Understood. So I guess there's sort of two different thought more like opinions or thought about you know publishing there's the vertical and there's publishers out there that try to do everything and everything and they try to be as lean as possible it seems to me more that you're going towards vertical do you think that you're taking a vertical approach and you're going to eventually go to other different when you're going to create the other properties are they going to be very similar or are they going to be so they'll be similar in the mission of serving an underserved audience and not going for scale but instead of going for depth with that audience. So we absolutely want to replicate the success that we can create with Norman for other audiences. And we've actually really thought about the different audiences we'll go after as driven by kind of personality. So one thing I know I mentioned that HuffPost group for introverts that we created, we would love to create a shopping experience for introverts. We would love to create one for type A personalities people with anxiety, the shopping experience really looks different for each of them and their needs are different. So that's kind of how we're thinking about building out more verticals. So less so in a, for me, vertical is almost kind of, I don't know, it's been somewhat of a dirty word where like you just create another section that is just putting content you would have had anyway in, under a different banner. So we really think about them as like community driven, less like this is just another vertical under a bigger umbrella. So in each of these cases, we will do massive amounts of research and kind of infiltrate those communities and see what do they need? Are they being served? And if they are being served, we'll move to the next one, but really let the audience kind of inform where we go next. But we're certainly looking to Norman to create somewhat of a playbook for those future audiences to kind of have from the you know distribution strategy with influencers to the business model to all of that. I think those kind of things will stay pretty similar between the properties, but a lot of the other things will change. Obviously, branding will change for each one and things like that. How do you see the difference between being mission, sort of underserving the under-mission, underserving mm -hmm. communities versus verticals which are more topic-driven or solid industry-driven? What do you see the difference between that and advantages and disadvantages in general? So I think the difference for me and kind of what we model post media after is for verticals that are more topic centric, the content informs the audience. So you create content and then you go find an audience to serve it to. So I'm writing about tech and then I go find a community that's into new gadgets. What we're doing, the community kind of verticalization of that is more like these are people who are dissatisfied with the way that they're doing something. So in our case, in a way that they're exploring and discovering new products. 
So let's create something that is explicitly for those people. And that's also really derived from a lot of research we've done about Gen Z. They, in a lot of ways, are verticalizing themselves. So I'm not sure if you've heard of something called a Finsta, so a fake Instagram. A lot of teens have multiple Instagrams, one that's their, like, you know, their name and just like what they pretend is the real Instagram, but then they have like five or six other Instagrams that are representations of different parts of their personality or intended for different friend groups. So we're really trying to kind of appeal to model ourselves in that same way. So there are so many different parts to every person. So we're just trying to appeal to a part of them that's very like an intimate part of them rather than just something that they have an interest in, if that makes sense. And also I think with Gen Z, a big part of it was their attention span is something like six or eight seconds. So being explicitly for them immediately is super important to having a shot at a relationship with them. If they kind of have to decode, like, who is this really for? I know I'm interested in tech, but like, I'm 18 and I don't have the same kind of spending power as a 30-year-old who's interested in tech. So we, we very much want to be explicitly for them. And we feel like we can do that if we are deriving content from that very, very niche person that we're creating it for. There's being very narrow and there's also being niche. It's how do you make sure that you find the balance in doing that? Because with a topic-based pace approach, like we said, you know, you find content and you then try to serve it to an audience, you know, you can generally speaking, find the data and information around that. What's, how do you find you're overcoming that, that challenge of you know, being very niche at the moment? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with our business model. A lot of publishers today that, like, let's say, have a, you know, take HuffPost Tech, for example, or I mean, HuffPost at one point had 50 different verticals, and now they have fewer, but still quite a few. They're playing a scale game. That's just how their business model works. Whereas we are a subscription-based, so we almost have the luxury of being able to be niche and not have to have massive scale because we're actually, our users are the revenue drivers for us. And we feel like having that relationship with them where they have been able to recognize that we're explicitly for them and that we will provide an explicit value for them with that initial app download that we'll be able to go deeper with them in terms of monetization, you know, whether it's live events or products from us down the line, things like that. If we stay very niche, that allows us to go deeper in monetization with the users that we have rather than have a shallower monetization plan with a massive amount of users. So it really like I, I'm not, you know, faulting any publishers for having those topic based verticals. You work for scale, like you said, and you work for subscription. So I, I totally agree. I understand. Right. Yeah. I think if it if we weren't subscription based, I'm not sure our concept would really work. If you were on an ad model and we're going for a super niche audience, I think that would be tricky <laughs> to sustain yourself for sure. With the verticals, I guess for people who don't know much about vertical publishing and, and how the landscape is, I know there's, there's some publications like Elite Daily and you said Colossi as well. Were they the first publications that took try to take a, a niche approach? And what, what are your thoughts on, about the past and the current landscape of vertical publishing vertical publishing isn't anything new you know like every magazine house all the different titles they have those are verticals and to me verticals just mean like how a publisher honestly i think it's more for a publisher's internal organization than it really reflects how their users experience i don't think users are often like I'm really into this section of the walls. Well, you know, it depends, but for HuffPost, at least, let's say, I don't think users were like, I'm obsessed with HuffPost tech. I think it was more like I go to HuffPost and I find stuff that I like. So I think it's kind of always been around. I think publishers like, like Mike, let's say they recently, or maybe, I don't know, maybe like a year ago-ish, rebranded a lot of their sections to be unique brands. So within Mike, they have like, the Strut and Slay and an entertainment one. I'm trying to think what that's called. Hype, I think that's called. So I think it's interesting the way publishers are starting to say, maybe this isn't just a subtopic, but it's another identity within our brand. Or like, for example, like with Thrillets, let's say, like those are all divided by locals, like so geography-based verticals. So I think there's definitely 
merit to it. I think it just, again, depends on your goals. I think, for example, with Mike, they basically just renamed their section, but it didn't seem like the actual strategy changed as much. They're much more platform first, I would say, but now they're kind of introducing new brands to people who might not know why those brands changed. And also like when you have their feminist kind of women's empowerment one, Slay, like that's a very, still a very broad topic. And I think publishers are getting there from going to be like very generalist to more niche, but I think it's still for a large part, just renaming previous sections. I think there are some, a few Gen Z products too, actually that are email in the form of email only, which I think is really interesting. Clover Letter and Lenny Letter are two different email products for young women, Gen Z women, even Girl Boss to an extent, which is a very kind of career female empowerment centric offering for, I think maybe they're more millennial than Gen Z, but I think those are actually really interesting ways companies are vertical, are creating verticalized products that are for a very specific audience and not not even coupled with something else. Like Clover Letter, for example, there's no other, you know, it's not side by side with something else or something for a different community. It really, that's what it is, soup to nuts. So I think publishers are getting there, but I think it's really difficult to shake that legacy verticalization kind of for the sake of verticalization. I do think they're moving away from the sake of it just for internal structure to be something that is more user-facing, but I think there's still kind of, there's a ways to go there. Well, I guess the vertical publishing was the first step in becoming more specific because a lot of in magazine publishing, like you said, every public, like a company might have different verticals. Um, and in the online sense, it was more general. So that first step in, you know, going vertical brought them a lot more revenue, I guess. So like you said, it's, I think it's time to shake it off, like taking time to shake off things and trying to... Yeah, I think that's what I learned a lot, I think, at, at HuffPost. And, and while like we weren't perfect at it, I think a question we often asked ourselves was, if, we, if HuffPost started today, what would it look like? It probably wouldn't look like different sections because that means nothing to a user. And, and again, I think a lot of that was informed by companies saying, here's what our internal structure will look like. We'll have a business desk and a politics desk. So what that translates to is a business section and a politics section. So I think getting away from having internal structure and operations dictate what that external product looks like. It's surprising that it's taken this long to kind of start moving away from that. It is, and a lot of people have said, like, you know, publishing is not going to survive, like, you know, for some, it still survives, there's still that need. So, yeah, it's a beast in itself, I think. Yeah, totally. Thing that came to my mind, and I remember, like, recently, HuffPost recently closed down the contributor section, and now they've got just stories or opinion by better professions rather than giving opportunity to other people to be able to do that. Would you consider ever allowing, I know you're focusing on content comments and it's not directly related to what you're doing, but was there any thoughts around trying to take that similar approach and then just trying to niche it to a specific, like, like, like you're doing with now with Norman, trying to take that to Norman? So I think the contributor model at HuffPost was super integral and really innovative when HuffPost first started. I think it also led to, and I also, I was not there when they, that was, I think at the beginning of this year that they closed the contributor model. So I wasn't there for it, but I, from, you know, my experience there, there's a lot of noise that comes in with when you open a platform up and really only a few things here and there are really things that are super quality that resonate with an audience. I would definitely, when it comes to Norman, not just make it kind of a free for all contributor platform, but it's so important to us that all of the content that is created for Norman is created by people within the community. So that really extends to how we're looking for freelancers. I think when it comes to our, the influencers that we're recruiting, we certainly would accept essays or write-ups about their favorite products or brands to publish on Norman. But I don't think we're looking at an open contributor model at this point. And part of that is also at, at HuffPost, the blog team that ingested all of those contributions from the community. That was a massive team. That's like major resources to put against editing and fact-checking, those kinds of things. You can't just publish anything that someone writes. I think that's definitely something we've thought about in the context of an open contributor platform, just the massive amount of resources that it goes into making it quality, which is not something that we have the luxury of at this point. Yeah, it's probably better just to focus more on recruiting rather than just trying to keep it free for all. And because like you said, 
Yeah, I think we want to be really deliberate in everything we do. So every story we write, we really want it to serve the community in a really impactful way. So we don't want a lot of noise on the app. And that's kind of the same way we're thinking about the audience. We're not trying to get people to download Norman who aren't really a core demo for us. We want it to be very deliberate audience and a deliberate product that we're serving them. Don't you sometimes have that urge of like, you know, I want to really grow this quickly. So I need to get more people on the platform and I need to do more. You know, sometimes you might consider trying to get more people for the sake of it. Have you ever experienced that or? I mean, coming from HuffPost, I have no doubt that those thoughts are going to go through my mind. It was literally my job at HuffPost to get as many people using HuffPost as possible. But I think just being frank, that's where I saw a lot of the pitfalls of HuffPost, those kind of cheap, not cheap tactics, like they were always organic ways of getting new people to HuffPost and smart strategies for sure. But I saw how that diluted the brand, I guess. And when we would talk about who's the HuffPost user, who's the reader, there was never ever an answer for who that person was. Because we, I mean, it was anyone really. So I think there will certainly be times where I'm like, oh God, like we need 50% more downloads this month. Let's just put a bunch of Facebook ads out there and see who we get. But that's, it's just our, we would be fulfilling our mission if we did that. So that's just something that I'm, you know, as much as I'm going to probably want to try to use my old HuffPost tactics with Norman, it's just, I need to kind of distill those into how is this actually applied to our business? Because it's a very, again, a very different business than HuffPost. So how are you making sure that you're happy with the progress that you're making? What kind of measurements and measures and even KPIs that you're putting in place to help you see the progression? So, I mean, we're at pre-launch right now. So I am so excited to actually launch with this alpha group to actually start getting some real data back to see how they're using Norman and kind of, and how they're navigating. So we have a lot of different kind of success metrics we'll be looking at once we're actually live with the app. But at this point, in terms of kind of setting milestones for ourselves and our progress, a lot of it is recruiting really quality freelancers from the community to work on some pretty awesome like enterprise pieces that we want to launch with. So getting making headway on that front is big for us and really starting to fill the boxes of our launch editorial calendar is big. The other major thing is just recruiting influencers. So we want to launch with about a million in distribution of those influencers networks. So that will probably be a couple hundred or maybe a thousand influencers that we've onboarded. So out the gate, we can say to them, okay, press go, Norman's live, you know, spread the word to your networks. That's a really time consuming, but it's a really tangible way to judge progress. So I'll say to myself at the end of this week, I want, you know, 300 more influencers onboarded, things like that. And then it, we also have our, our tech build happening right now. So there's tons of road mapping and different ways we can kind of judge our progress by different features we've kind of crossed off the list or the design implementation that we've done and things like that. So task driven based on the objective you said and sentiment to, to what I sort of distilled from what you said, is that, would you summarize it in that way? I think the feedback we're getting through the influencer reach out we're doing is twofold. It helps us with our distribution model, but it also is giving us real-time feedback in the way that we're talking about Norman to these influencers, the way that we're putting it out there kind of in the wild. So like you said, a lot of kind of narrative feedback, as well as like just task-driven progress. We have Trello boards and Slack and all that stuff that we're constantly just telling each other, okay, this is done, this is done, this is done all day long. Cool. No, that makes sense to me. So with the distribution, you mentioned about the distribution model. So about the apps, are they going to be mobile apps? Or how do you see the current distribution model work moving forward? Yeah, so we will be on iPhone and Android app only. We aren't going to be launching with mobile web or desktop, especially for the demo that we're going with, with teens, Gen Z. We really knew we had to be app-based. So the way the distribution model will work is influencers will promote Norman via different kind of marketing materials that we'll give them or that they are absolutely free to create or by distributing content. So everyone will get, I think we're still kind of working out the onboarding process, but they'll it'll be kind of like a freemium thing where you'll get a number of free articles to begin upon download and then a paywall will kind of emerge after that. But we'll also be looking to the influencers to circulate 
promo codes for three months free, things like this. And we're, we're talking about a nominal fee, like $2.99 a month is kind of what we're going to be going with probably. And we've done a lot of work with Gen Z focus groups to say like, what is a fee that works for you? They're very comfortable with subscription models just because it's something that they've grown up with. Spotify and Netflix and all of that subscription models aren't really a big deal for them. They aren't the hurdle that they are for millennials, let's say. So kind of like that's how we'll work to drive our influencers networks to the app through their own endorsement of it. We'll also have each of the influencers that we recruit will have an opportunity to endorse specific products within the app. So they will be able to drive their audience to the app to say, if you want to look at my shopping list or the things that I'm looking forward to for spring fashion, something like that go to Norman and you can check out like my page on Norman. So they will be very much integrated within Norman, which incentivizes their followings who, you know, I feel like they have an intimate connection with them to go to Norman to kind of to learn more about those influencers that they really know and trust. Would you not classify apps as part of mobile web or are you considering that just completely as mobile phone use? Well, it will be mobile only for sure upon launch. We'll build out like the mobile web and desktop post launch, but we're just launching with iOS and Android apps and App Store. How are you going to be able to measure the success of the results that you want to get out from Norman? Are you going to use analytics or like, is it Google Analytics or is there specific other tracking mechanisms that you're going to be using or? Yeah. So in terms of our influencers, we'll use each of them will have unique tracking codes, deep linking tracking codes to the app to kind of see how users are getting, are becoming aware of Norman and actually who makes it through the onboarding process, who actually makes it through the onboarding process, the free articles, and then converts to a download. So we'll have tracking for all of that. And then within the app, we'll be doing a lot of tracking around retention. How often are they coming back? What kind of areas, we have a couple different areas within the app that you can kind of navigate. So where are they spending most of their time? What kind of rabbit holes are they falling down? How are they navigating between these different sections? We're going to have one section of it that's kind of like gamified. So is that a big draw? And do we build that out further? So I think in the beginning for the alpha, at least, we're going to have a kind of a lot of not Easter eggs, but like little things here and there that we want to see, does this pique their interest? And is this something that we should build out more? So that's what we'll be doing a lot of the testing around in the beginning, a lot of A-B testing and the also more like anyone with an app is tracking, you know, opens, retention, page views, these, all that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll have all of that in terms of analytics as well. Recirculation, all that stuff. That makes sense. So I guess looking forward, like what do you see the trends in content commerce and you know, mobile looking like for this year moving ahead, moving forward? Yeah. So I think contextualized commerce is really big for Gen Z specifically. They really crave validation in the products that they purchase, but also they want just more reviews and recommendations. There's just so much kind of on the web right now in terms of commerce. And while millennials grew up with search and know how to navigate that really easily, Gen Z kind of grew up in the age of push alerts and notifications and DMs. So they're less adept at going out and finding what they want. So I think especially commerce, e-commerce, commerce content brands who are looking to appeal to Gen Z are going to be much more focused on kind of curation. Whereas like a lot of millennials right now are interested in algorithms and personalization and, and kind of they can navigate those things on their own. I think Gen Z wants a bit more of that curation back, which I think kind of goes to a couple cycles ago with like how publishers were thinking about front pages. It used to be a very curated thing. And for a lot of publishers now, it's just a set of algorithms that programs their front pages of their experiences. So I think it's coming a little bit full circle back to very recommendation driven, very curated experiences for a younger audience when it comes to e-commerce. They're looking for those cues from experts or brands who can give that to them. But, but I guess the recommendation will need to be really from close connections, not sort of from like inverted commas, authority people or in like bigger influencers. What are your thoughts around that? Like, because, you know, I've read saying that people are less trusting reviews because it's not authentic or, you know, it's just coming from right. people that don't know, essentially. And that's exactly why we're going with the influencer model. These are people that they feel like they know and trust pretty implicitly. They, you know, 
trust influencers way more than celebrities. Like celebrity endorsements don't work with Gen Z much. I think the only exception is like the sports realm with younger teen boys, but the influencers are people that they trust very explicitly. So getting recommendations from them, I think does a lot of the work for us. And aside from that, the people that are going to be creating the content for Norman are part of their community. So again, because we're that very niche, serving that very niche community from and by that community, I think that kind of trust because it is explicitly for them is kind of going to be ingrained in the experience. It's very much like that's our goal. We'll see come launch whether we're successful with it, but that's the driving kind of mission behind everything that we're doing. Trust is so, so important. And I I think that goes back to to like our mission of really serving this audience. I think it's something like 85% of teens will trust a brand with a good social mission. So it's going to be ingrained in our experience too, that we are supporting this community in a few different ways. So I think that will be helpful for us. So in terms of the revision trust, how can you use technology or what kind of technology trends or innovations have you seen that will help with, with your serving your mission and in providing relevant product recommendations? Sure. So I think the easy answer would be personalization from a tech perspective. That said, I don't think Facebook even has mastered or Instagram has mastered personalization. I can't tell you how many people I see complaining about their Instagram feeds and things like that. So we are not attempting to personalize via, you know, an algorithm or tech solution. All of that will be hand done. But I think in terms of tech, we're thinking more about just kind of like the shopping experience, like what does AR look like within our experience? And then again, that's something that will certainly not be part of our MVP, but we're looking more towards tech in that way. Like how can we make the commerce experience something that's really tangible and makes it even increases that level of trust because you know what you're going to get. So that's something that we've been talking about. So we're looking more about how to bring products and the shopping experience to people in an innovative way, rather than like playing with algorithms to guess what they want. Cause I do think that element of discovery within a set of products or something that are all geared toward you, of course, you're still going to have preferences within that. But I think that delight upon discovery is something that we still, that is important to us for sure. We don't just want to serve you exactly what you want. And mainly because there's no way we could do that because we don't know, you know, every person, even within a niche community is different. And we haven't seen an algorithm from these massive platforms do it right yet. So we're not thinking about kind of that level of, of tech implementation. Have you heard of immersive journalism? It's it's a new phrase I've heard from New York Times last with their coverage of Olympic Games. They're trying to use AR in creating immersive journalism. Have you heard of anything around that before? I think the Times has done some AR stuff in the past, and there are definitely some, like Audi, the car brand, does really cool AR implementation when it comes to products. I know some, yeah, digital brands, publishing brands that are kind of scratching the surface of it for sure. But I haven't seen anyone do it in like a really consistent or I guess servicey way yet. But yeah, absolutely. Like journalism, VR, AR, all of that kind of stuff. That people are hopping on that in a big way. And I think that's awesome. How would that describe that for people who haven't done it before? Is it pretty much them just journalists covering a story in their own time? Or how does it work? You know, that could mean a lot of different things. That could mean really diving into a story on many different levels it could i think like a lot of the big featurey stuff that the times does as well as huffpost has kind of a enterprise arm called highline i would call what they do also immersive journalism i think immersive journalism is telling a story in a way that feels tangible to a reader and i don't think that means it has to have ar or vr or like crazy technology i think it's kind of just a storytelling technique but i think when you can apply technology that makes sense for that story, not just for the sake of like having cool tech involved in a story. I think more and more publishers are certainly interested in doing that in for the sake of like kind of differentiating themselves for innovating on the storytelling format. You know, it went from photos in a piece to video to VR now. So I think it's just kind of the next wave of how can we tell stories where someone feels empathy. I think a lot of immersive journalism is meant to generate empathy at least like with VR, that was like the main goal for most journalists or publishers getting into VR was that empathy 
engine that that technology can create. So I think immersive journalism to me doesn't mean a specific type of tech. It just means telling a story in a deeper way. In short, watch your space. I think it's it's going to be something which is rapidly evolving. So I look forward to yeah. seeing it. Yeah. yeah, very cool. I know we've spoken about you know the exciting launch with Toast and Norman in March. What are the other plans that you have in the roadmap for this year? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's hard to think post-launch right now. Yeah, start up and everything constantly changes. So I know it's a bit hard, but yeah, what do you, yeah. I think our goal this year is to really create a base of users who are in our target demo and really learn from them about how they're using Norman. I think by the end of the year, we'd have like to have some ideas about what our next property is that we're going to launch and have some like pretty tangible success from Norman that we can apply to that next property. I think that's certainly a goal of ours. I think... Again, it's just, it's really just getting Norman out in the wild and learning from that user base. It's probably too soon to say that within the year we would start doing events for this community, but that's certainly something Gen Z craves that because so much of their world exists digitally, they really crave that in-person connection with their peers. So I think events are something that we 100% see being part of the PMG ecosystem. So I think we'd love to start thinking about that by the end of the year for 2019. But I think it's just going to be this year, heads down, diving into insights and saying what's working and how can we double down and whatever is not working, how can we tweak it or move on from it? We very much, I think, are a team, luckily, that isn't you know super attached to different ideas we come up with and kind of blind to see how our actual audience interacts with them. We want to create something, again, that is specifically for this audience and kind of dictated by the audience. So at the end of the day, they're our bosses. You know, They're going to dictate what's working and what's not and the next direction that we can go in. So at this point, we're really, we're heads down for launch and just so excited to get that feedback from the audience once we launch. And that will really dictate a lot of our, of how it, how it evolves. And personally, for you professionally wise, I guess for this year, I'm sure to, to us, you want to be, have post to be successful, but is there any areas of skill development or anything that you're interested in, in your learning that you want to achieve as well? Or? Yeah, I think what I've learned so far from the business side of things, I it was very, when I was at HuffPost, I worked closely with our business development team and our and our CEO to think about kind of like the business side of HuffPost, but I was by no means an expert on that side. It wasn't my background at all. So I think I just want to do a lot of learning and listening on that side of things. I think starting a new company, I know the vision for TMG. I know our mission. I know like kind of the distribution model and the content strategy plan and the audience development plan for it. And I have a business model, but I'm, you know, I've been going to classes at General Assembly on how to do your own PL and things like that. So for me, there's going to be, I mean, it's imperative that I really dive into that side of things more. I have a huge bookshelf full of business books that I'm working my way through. So I'm definitely, I have a lot of learning to do on that front. So that's a big goal for me this year. In addition to that, like I've started talking to our accountant and our lawyer about different ways to set us up for success. So there's just a ton of learning there when it comes to these different facets of starting a business that I have zero experience in. So I think I just, my goal for myself is to really practice humility in those moments where I, I say, I have no idea what that means, Mr. Lawyer. Can you repeat that in a way that I can understand? So I, I think that's been a really exciting and humbling part of starting all of this and a goal for me this year, especially to keep learning from people who are experts in this field. And that's one of the great things too about having been at HuffPost for so long. I've met so many people not only within digital media, but who are related to it, who know media, but also have another expertise. So I've been able to tap so many people in my networks to help me kind of navigate all of this, which has been has been really awesome. And I'm super thankful for it. No matter what happens, you're going to get something out of it. You see for sure. Like Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think that's the mindset to stick with too. No matter what happens, I've learned so much. So nothing but a good experience for sure. But hopefully, hopefully we got, we see some success. I'm rooting for you as well. Thank you. Finally, just in terms of career progression and advice for those you know who are starting out or who maybe want to branch out, seeing your success, which I'm rooting for you, see your success. How do you? What kind of progression advice can you provide them? Career progression. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the biggest advice I can give would be like, don't get stuck in a box that you've created for yourself. I think one thing I've I've learned is that 
So out of I went to school for journalism. Out of school, I was an entertainment reporter at HuffPost. I had no idea I would end up being the head of growth and analytics for HuffPost. Like if you told me that when I started as an entertainment reporter, I'd be like, that's ridiculous. I want to be a writer. So I think not being afraid to follow interests that lead you away from what you thought you were going to do is super important. I don't miss writing at all. And I never thought I would have said that. So, and I, I think too often, with young people that I have kind of mentored or who are kind of, who were starting, who were, you know, more junior at HuffPost, mm -hmm. they often were afraid or didn't have the confidence to try something new, even though it kind of piqued their interest. So I think don't put yourself in a box. I think we often put ourselves in boxes more than other people put us in boxes. So try to not put yourself in a box, but also find a mentor that might not necessarily be in your specific department at your job, but who you just think is doing things that are cool or doing something in their own way or unique way and, and talk to them to see how they can kind of help you navigate your career, I'd say. I think what you said is a fundamental truth that everyone needs to realize because if you don't get out of your box, then like you said, you're not going to grow and you're not going to be able to see what's totally. outside. So. And it's scary. I mean, honestly, starting this company is the most terrifying thing I've ever done. I'm, I'm absolutely, it's very scary, but nothing, you know, what's the phrase? Nothing worth fighting for was not, was easy or, you know, whatever. It's totally true though. So do something scary, I guess, would be my advice. Kiki, thanks again for joining me. I wish you all the best luck with the launch and please keep us posted on how you go. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Bye. This was great. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time. It's got to be five-hour energy. It works fast. It works long. It tastes good. And with zero sugar and four calories, there's nothing holding you back. Fits your pocket. Fits your backpack. Fits your on-the-go life, whether you're going to work, going on vacation, or just going out with friends. Five-hour energy. Energy on the go. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. Five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go, to the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea, caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight from the makers of Five-Hour Energy. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com.